Luke chapter 11, verses 5 and 13. And he said to them, Which of you who has a friend will go to him at midnight and say to him, Friend, lend me three loaves, for a friend of mine has arrived on a journey, and I have nothing to set before him. And he will answer from within, Do not bother me, the door is now shut, and my children are with me in bed. I cannot get up and give you anything. I tell you, though he will not get up and give him anything, because he is his friend, yet because of his impudence he will rise and give him whatever he needs. And I tell you, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds. And to the one who knocks it will be opened. What father among you, if he has son, ask for a fish, will instead of a fish give him a serpent? Or if he asks for an egg, will give him a scorpion? If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the Heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? This is the word of the Lord. Amen. You can be seated. We'll dismiss our school-age kids to the back. And um, as they head that way, let me invite you, if you brought a Bible or you got it on an app or something, to open to uh, Luke chapter 11 as we're going to continue our series in prayer called Pray What You Got. Pray What You've Got. Admittedly, most people, and we've said it every week, when asked about the discipline or the privilege or the practice of prayer, um, often find themselves wanting. It's not something that normally most of us put on our spiritual resume that we're really good at it. We always feel that we could likely do better and do more. And yet prayer is this greatest privilege of our life that we get to, we don't pray for prayer's sake. Prayer is communicating with God. And that's what we're invited to do, to communicate with God. Gospel of Luke shows us that this prayer is actually in, and in Luke 11 shows us that Jesus' whole life was literally saturated with prayer. If you remember, it shows Jesus praying at his baptism, him praying through his temptation, him getting alone to pray again and again. It's amazing to me, even in this passage, that the disciples asked Jesus to teach them to pray after all they'd seen. After they'd seen him turn water into wine, that'd be a pretty cool party trick if you knew how to do that. That that may be something they could ask Jesus. Jesus, show us how to do that thing. Or to raise people from the dead or to heal people or to preach and tell stories in such a persuasive way as which he did. But that's not what they asked. The disciples knew that the source of all of those other things was Jesus' connection to the Father and how he prayed. And so they would ask him, Lord, teach us to pray. And in a sense, that's what we're asking this morning. Lord, teach us to pray. In the passage we're looking at today in Luke 11, and we've looked at it a couple times already, and we're going to look at it a few more times. There's so much here about prayer. Verses 2 through 13 is the totality of the answer to that question. 
you go back to verse 1 with me of Luke 11, now Jesus was praying in a certain place. Hebrew says that oftentimes Jesus would pray with loud cries and tears. He would pray prayers of desperation and in anguish. This is the the way that Jesus prayed. And, And there was a certain personal aspect to his praying that them being good Jews had never heard. Remember, as Jews, they weren't even allowed to use his covenant name. They weren't even allowed to call him Yahweh. They, they came up with the word Jehovah so that they didn't have to use his personal name but could use a name that everyone understood was talking about him. And then when Jesus prayed, he p- prayed, he pleaded with this like personal angst in his heart as he would say, our father. Lord, teach us to pray as John taught his disciples. And he said to them, when you pray, say this, Father, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Give us each day our daily bread and forgive us of our sins as we forgive everyone who's indebted to us and lead us not into temptation. Of course, Matthew 6 has a little bit bigger version of that. But this is his answer. He shows them the the how, and then he goes into the who. Who is on the other side of that prayer? Who is the one that we really think is listening to these prayers that we're praying? And who are we really as we put ourselves in the posture of prayer? This little passage we're going to focus on uh, today, 5 through 8, this little parable that Jesus gives them, teaches us something about ourselves and teaches us something about who he is. As we jump in, would you pause just for a minute right where you are? Would you ask God to speak to you? It would be a tragedy to move through today, to gather with God's people, to sing as we've sang already, to hear the word proclaimed, to leave here in 45 minutes and not have heard from God. Father, Abba. You know the cries of the hearts in this room. You know what we're wrestling with and what we're hiding. You know our strength and our struggles. You know the victories and the things that weigh us down. And God, we ask that you would speak to us. Holy Spirit, would you illuminate the face of Jesus so that we could see him this morning? And Jesus, would you point us to the heart of the Father as you always do? It's in your mighty name that we pray, amen. As Lacey read it, you may have noticed in this first little parable, Jesus tells us, he introduces us to three characters. We have a visitor. It pops in late at night. We have the host that needs some bread to care for his newly arrived guest. And we have the neighbor who's basically in the middle of his REM sleep. Now, often we read this so quickly that we miss it. We've never really looked at these characters, maybe, maybe you have. Maybe you've confused this one, as I often do, with the persistent widow in Luke 18, and we think it's the same, it's the same story with the same point, and it's, it's not. It's actually very different. 
So I want us to look at these three and that we would unearth maybe what's been hidden in this text. Most of us, again, read through scripture so fast that we've never even noticed this. This is why we're going to slow down over the next couple weeks and look just at these few passages in Luke 11. I want us to see all Jesus intends us to see. A visitor that pops in late at night, a host that needs some bread, and a neighbor who is in deep sleep. Now, oftentimes when we read this, we miss the context too, because in ancient times there was a need and even often a lawful requirement for hospitality. Because there were no hotels, if you arrived somewhere late at night, you would have nowhere to stay. Because there were no restaurants, if you arrived after hours or even during hours, there was nowhere to, there was no Happy Meal to grab. There was just hunger. And if you had traveled on a long journey, as many of them often had, that they had already run out with the provisions that they had brought with them. And so there was a, literally a, a lawful requirement for hospitality. Travelers were dependent upon strangers to care for them. They were so vulnerable to all the dangers of thieves and, uh, and wild animals that they needed a place to stay. So there was a lawful requirement, but even, even greater than that, there was, a, there was a cultural precedent in this Near Eastern culture. It was a culture of honor. And if you did not treat a guest well that popped in at any time during the day and requested assistance from you, if you did not honor that culture, if you didn't do this well, you'd better just go ahead and move towns because there was going to be a dissent against you in that community. And if you visit, you know, some of our adopted people group in Southeast Asia, it's very similar to this. Even our missionaries who believe very differently than most of the people they're trying to reach, when they come upon a village, they're often welcomed in and given a place to sleep. It was an honor culture, and that cultural precedent demanded that they receive a visitor in the day or in the night. But on top of that, there's something else that's driving this story. That Christians did this so excellently well that the emperors of Rome noticed how well Christians practice hospitality. The biblical word for this Starting even in the Old Testament, a word I've used already, continuing here is this word hospitality. It literally is translated love or care of strangers. Christians, early Christians had this worldview to care for the stranger was so important for one day you yourself would be the stranger. And the other thing that drove this Christian worldview is that they understood that the world that they lived in, the strength that they used, the tools that they uh, may have handled, none of those things were yours. Even the land you lived on, you were a steward of it. God owned everything. And he had placed you there to steward the little things around you, to steward them well and to point everyone else to be a light to the nations was the old testament charge to the people of god to be a light to the nations that you would live in such a way and paul picks up this term that you would live in such a way that you would adorn the gospel basically that the way you showed hospitality literally love and care for strangers would be one of the deciding factors to whether your belief in jesus was really real or not because anybody can love someone who loves them but to love a stranger to love your neighbor as yourself. If you get hungry in the night, you go to the kitchen. 
If you get scared in the night, you'd lock the doors and grab a gun. There's immediate reaction to the emotional triggers that we have. And scripture tells us that we're to love our neighbors, to show hospitality, to love them as ourselves. First Peter 4, 9 says, show hospitality to one another. I love this too, without grumbling. All right, Lord, I'll do it, but I don't like it. First Peter says, no, that's not the heart of a Christian. The heart of a Christian has been so loved by God that they just spew onto everyone around them the love of God through them. A few of the story, a few of the details that make sense of this story. First, in this country without electricity, midnight is not what we would consider midnight. Midnight is literally the middle of the night. It's not like your college experience where midnight was like the first Taco Bell run and you were gonna do another one at 2 a.m., right? That's, I mean, that's just me. Midnight was literally the middle of the night. They went to bed at sundown. So by midnight, they had been fast asleep for four hours. This guy is well into his REM sleep. And then notice it says in the passage that he's in bed with his children. In those days, people lived in small one-room houses, about two or 300 square feet, with one big area of hay and maybe cloth that would have been the bed area. Everyone kind of slept in the same little area. So in order to get up to get bread for the host that is now knocking on the door, not only does he have to get up, he has to wake everyone else in the house up to meet this need. Parents, I don't have to tell you how irritating it would be to have finally gotten all of your kiddos to sleep and you start, you fall asleep yourself only to have someone banging on the door asking you for bread. Hey, bro, I need some bread. Bro, I'm gonna knock you out. <laughs> you, especially if you have young kids, you know this very well, to get all the kids asleep, especially if you have a couple around the same age and you get them finally down for nap time. You better not wake that baby or you will be killed, right? Anybody identify with this? I remember Ashley put a sign on our front door for the delivery drivers. Baby sleeping, you dare not knock. That's what she put. Literally, that was on the front door and our side door. Don't you do it. Well, then honoring that request, one delivery driver did not knock, but instead rang the doorbell. They missed the points. I was not home. I come home to finding two doorbells ripped from the front of our house and the side of our house. Ashley says, forget this for chance. I'm ripping the thing down, right? You will not wake them up again. This is, this is the picture. This is not going to be a convenient need that you can meet. This is not a, at lunch, hey, bro, I forgot my wallet. Can you cover mine? Hey, you got a stick of gum? Um, you're headed this way. You're going to pass the coffee shop. Can you bring a coffee? This is not a convenient need that is to be met. This is something that's going to take quite a bit, right, from the good neighbor. <laughs> I also love, do you see this, where he calls him a friend? He says, friend, me, lend me three loaves. That's a good word for him to use because when you're waking someone up at the mid the midnight hour, this whole friendship thing is really on thin ice. The third detail to notice is the man is making the request here 
for bread. It's not like he has an emergency. It's not like, hey, my friend has arrived and been attacked by wild dogs. He's bleeding all over the place. Can I have some bandages? No, it's like, hey, man, I have some guests that came, and I'm out of Hot Pockets. Can you, can you help me? Finally, the request put forth is exorbitant. He doesn't ask for a Hot Pocket. He asked for three loaves of bread. In this day, a normal loaf of bread would feed a family. He asked for three. More on this in a bit. The one other thing I want us to notice, and then we're going to read the parable again. Then I want to point out some more things. Jesus puts the audience in the story as the host. The traveler or sojourner comes by, the host, played by you in this story, you aren't ready. On top of this, the sojourner, the traveler, the visitor is a friend. Either you've been to their house before on a journey or they've been by your house before. You didn't know they were coming and you aren't ready. So let's read the passage again in verse 5. And then he said to them, which of you has a friend will go to him at midnight and say to him, friend, lend me three loaves for a friend of mine has arrived on a journey and I have nothing to set before him. And he will answer from within, do not bother me. The door is shut. My children are with me in bed. I cannot give up, get up and give you anything. I tell you, though he will not get up and give him anything because he's his friend, yet because of his impudence, he will rise and give him whatever he needs. Then the hinge verse of these two passages in verse 9, and I tell you, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find, knock, and it will be open. For everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds, and the one who knocks it will be open. We see the pressure here is on the host. It's actually their fault that they aren't ready. They have to solve this problem. So they go to a neighbor to get what they weren't prepared to give. So you get the idea. The neighbor eventually relents. Eventually gets up and he wakes the whole family up and he unlocks the barred doors and he lights a torch or a candle of some sort so that he can find where the bread is probably stored where pests would not get to it and he goes through all of the trouble of unwrapping it and pulling out the three loaves and then he gives it to the host to his friend and it says here the neighbor goes through the trouble to give the bread, not because of the friendship. Do you see that word? It's kind of a weird word. We don't use it very often. It's the word impudence in the ESV. Or the NIV says shameless audacity. The key to the host's success was his posture. It was his shameless audacity that gets his neighbor out of bed 
There's something that we can learn about ourselves and something we can learn about the Father here, something we can learn about prayer. Remember, this is not about the words. It's not even about the friendship. Jesus is trying to introduce us to the Father and what moves the Father's heart. And he's already told us it's not the amount of words. It's not the eloquence that you might bring. It's not the way that you're going to ask. It's not the, the words. There's no incantation here that actually moves the heart of the Father. No, it's your heart that moves the heart of the Father. This word, impudence, is the only time used in Scripture. In the Greek, it's anadia, and I don't bring the Greek stuff up very much, but this, it's, it's, it's critical to understanding this passage. It, it really means without down, downcast eyes. It means without any shame. Without any modesty. Without any regret. Moving past decorum. You know, the kind of way that you might ask your parents for something. You wouldn't ask it of a friend. You probably wouldn't ask it of a neighbor. But you've got, if you have a close family, you would ask it maybe of a family member. This is not like, you know how our kids have to raise money for school and they have to do the things. And so you kind of send it out to all your connections and say, hey, man, no pressure, man. But, you know, we're, ma- we're raising money for the bowling club. And if you just want to give per pin that I knocked down this year, man, for a couple thousand dollars, you can support us. But no pressure, bro. This is seriously. I got to send out 10 emails. It's really no big deal. That's not this kind of asking. No, the host here must throw off the decorum. He must throw off his own pride. Jesus says this is how we must pray, not for ourselves in this passage. This is how we must pray for whom? This is how we pray for our friends. There are all kinds of ways that God's not like the sleepy friend, and we're going to see that later. But the the one main point of comparison here is this is how we pray. He is encouraging a holy boldness, a sharp knocking, an insistent asking, a search that refuses to give up. And this is what our prayers, Jesus says, this is how we should pray. The disciples come, Lord, teach us to pray. He goes through the Lord's Prayer, our Father in heaven. He goes through that peace. And then he immediately tells this story about the posture of our heart while praying that prayer. Jesus says, I want you to knock. And if no one comes to the door, I want you to keep on knocking. And I want you to let them know that it's no use that the lights are off. They don't fool you. You know their home. And you know they know you know their home. Everyone knows their home. You're not going to go away. You're not easily rebuffed. You're just one of those kind of people that's just going to keep asking and keep knocking. So you might as well get up and give me the bread. Well, look, how, how does this idea jive with the whole idea of God's sovereignty? I mean, if it's, if it's God's will that... We give that request, that he would give that request. Why not just give it the first time we ask for it? And to be completely sure, I'm, I'm not completely sure. I have a couple ideas that I'll share in a moment, but the point is clear. God only gives some things in response to ongoing, patient, persistent prayer. Friends, we have to take the initiative to throw off the decorum, to go with confidence in prayer to a loving father who can actually change the hearts of other people. He can change people's situation. This is the song we opened up with. 
What, is there a mountain that he can't move? No, absolutely there's not. Is there a situation he can't change? Is there a heart that he can't transform? This is the kind of praying that pushes through the formalities. You know those depth of heart prayers when a loved one is sick, when a friend is lost without Jesus, when a son or daughter has ran away? Augustine said it this way about this passage. This is the quote, I think I have it on the screen. But our Lord Jesus Christ, who in the midst of us, a petitioner, with God a giver, would not surely exhort us to strong, so strongly to ask if he were not willing to give. Let us then, let then the slothfulness of men be put to shame. He is more willing to give than we to receive. This is where we find out about the Father, that he's a giver. He can meet the needs of the people in our lives. And because he can meet the needs of the people in our lives, then we should ask with shameless audacity, without downcast eyes, Lord, could you please help that situation? And then that's it. Know that we would go with boldness and confidence into the throne room and we would ask and we would knock and we would seek and we would keep asking and keep knocking and keep seeking. Well, look, how do, how do we apply this to our lives exactly? Well, there's, there's some roadblocks for sure. This is where we get into some challenge. You can buckle up here. We struggle to pray like this because we've used the wrong priorities in prayer and the wrong posture in prayer, certainly. This t- passage, again, teaches us something about ourselves and something about God. First, we often don't see our friend's problem as our problem. We have have no spiritual ownership of those around us. If you're in a financial crisis, man, that can do something in your heart, can it? It can make you anxious and worried and nervous. You can start to adjust the budget. You can start looking at the things that you can sell. You wake up early thinking about it. You go to bed late. You wake up through the night. It is just this heaviness that sits on you, this financial burden. But if your neighbor has a financial burden... If your friend, I'll give you a couple dollars in my wallet and then I'll say a prayer for you. But it's not the same thing, right? You see the ownership? If you have a son that's lost, confused, distraught, there'll be no sleeping. No, we're persevering through the night. We're crying all the tears. We're going after the heart of God on behalf of our kids. But if your neighbor's kids have have the same situation, does it drive us the way that it does this passage here? See, we don't see our friend's problem as our problem. We don't travail in prayer for others because most of the time we're too lazy, maybe too distracted, often too selfish. Their problems simply don't engage our hearts if we're honest. So maybe we'll throw up a prayer once or twice. Maybe we'll call the church and put it on a a prayer list somewhere. But we're not fasting over their needs. As the text suggests here that we should keep knocking. 
seems to be a little much. Jesus, this is a little much. So first, we don't, we don't own our, the problems of our friends. Second, our schedule's not going to allow such an opportunity. Most of us live with such little margin in our schedules, and even if there is margin, we do not want to be interrupted. And if we have a friend call and say that they have a need and they need to sit and talk and they need to have coffee, we'll say, bless you, my friend. If I have a little window of time on Friday from 2 to 2.30, can you do it then? Well, that's not how the neighbor responds in our text. So we respond that way and we miss the opportunity to pray on behalf of a friend because we just don't have the time. Friends, can I ask you this deeply personal question? Are are you interruptible? So many of Jesus' miracles and his ministry happened on the way to another thing, and he gets interrupted. And then a couple times, he's on his way to do something, gets interrupted. He goes to meet that, and he didn't get interrupted again. This This is the three interruptions. Are you interruptible? Have you laid your schedule before the Lord and said, Lord, this is, this is not my life. I'm just a steward of everything around me. This is not my money. This is not my bread. This is yours. And whatever you would like for me to do with it, would you move my heart in such a way that I could be a, able to be a blessing to someone? The third challenge we come to is, and it's similar to the second, is it's costly to help other people. The understanding here is that the host would have given the first little bit of bread that he had before reaching out to the neighbor. Certainly gave of his time, of his space. Are we willing to give our money and our time and our resources and give up even our comfort to help a friend? And even if we were willing to do all three of those, the last challenge and the real challenge here is our own pride because oftentimes we can't meet the need our friend's need is too big they need physical healing we've gave them all the suggestions of the doctors that we may know of we may have even pulled some strings and got them in but that's all we can do we can't heal Maybe their financial need is so great that we can't step in. Maybe the difficulty is between people. And there's a hatred maybe even between people, even of the same family. And it's eating our friend up and they want to be reunited. And, and we can't do that. We, we, it's beyond the scope of what we can do. So we have to go on their behalf to the Father. When's the last time a friend asked you to pray with them and you prayed with shameless audacity, with boldness and fervency? Friends, this is how prayer changes us. It changes us on a heart level. It reminds us that The only prayer that works is needy, childlike praying. That's why Jesus is not impressed with the formality. 
That's why he's not impressed with the number of words. What moves the heart of God is your heart that's needy and desperate. See, Jesus knows what it's like to be every person in the story. Jesus knows what it's like to be the visitor. Scripture tells us that he had no place to lay his head. He knows what it's like not to have bread. Most of his ministry was funded by some converted women that came alongside and gave him the very money. When Peter is asking about taxes that he's owed, Jesus can't reach into a money bag and hand him the money. Jesus doesn't have it. Jesus knows what it's like to be the visitor. Next, Jesus knows what it's like to be the neighbor. He literally invites us to bring our burdens to him. When a friend comes to you in the middle of the night and saying, hey, I've got this need and you're not ready to meet that need, Jesus says, please quick, come as quickly as you can to me so that I can help meet that need. The best illustration of this is a story in Mark 2, and I didn't, I didn't put this on the screen. You've heard this story. This is about the four friends that bring their paralyzed friend on the mat. You've heard this story maybe. I'm going to read it quickly. There's just such a... Incredible point. Jesus is in his hometown. It was reported that he was home and many were gathered so that there was no more room, not even at the door. He was preaching the word to them and they came bringing to him a paralytic carried by four men. And when they could not get near him because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him. And when they had made an opening, they let down the bed on which the paralytic lay, Scripture says in verse 5. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. This is an illustration in Mark 2, an actual event that happened, that Jesus is basically referring to in Luke 11, and this is how we should pray. These are the kind of friends that we should be. What friends? I mean, can you imagine the work that it took those four men to carry their friend who had this need that they could not meet? Because they were friends, maybe they tried to help him meet some of his other needs they could meet. Maybe they made sure that he was taken care of and that he uh, was bathed and that they would address any wounds he might have, bed sores from laying there all the time and make sure he has enough to eat and make sure he's safe and they could take care of what they could take care of. But there was the glaring need that they couldn't take care of. And so they had this idea that Jesus had come to town and the only hope they had at this point was to bring this friend to Jesus. And I don't know how much the man weighed, but I imagine they, who know, we don't know how long they had to walk. They could walk a couple hundred yards or several miles carrying their friend all along. Can you imagine the hope, the persistence in their own heart? This is our friend's last chance. We got to take him to Jesus. And they get there and there's no room for him. And I love the persistence of these friends because they didn't see the crowded door and be like, Hey, bud, man, this is unfortunate. We've carried you all this way. The room's packed. It must not be the Lord's will. 
They didn't just say, hey, we're going to set you at the door. And Jesus has got to come out the house eventually. When he comes out, that's your moment. No. They said, you know what? Let's take the roof off of this place. Can you imagine? And not like uh, skylights that they're like popping open. No, this would have been a clay and straw roof probably. And with their very own hands it says they made an opening they didn't have shovels with them can you imagine being in the ground if even in this very moment someone started coming through the roof and all the debris started falling on the heads of those underneath them and what can you imagine what the crowd was saying you know what they were saying what shameless audacity these men must have but Jesus didn't respond that way This is a verse that even theologians have problems with in verse 5. And when Jesus saw their faith, not the paralytic's faith, he's just being carried on the bed. When Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, son, your sins are forgiven. In verse 11 down, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed and go home. And he rose and immediately picked up his bed and went out before them. And they were amazed and they glorified God saying, we've never seen anything like this. I bet that was the best walk home. Can you imagine? Jesus is the neighbor. He says, hey, come to me. If you're weak and weary, if you're burdened, I'll give you rest. He invites us to come to him. He's the best neighbor. But finally, he's the perfect host. We were the visitor traveling in the dark of night. We were the visitor slave to sin. And he took us in. Scripture says, well, we were still sinners. Christ died for us. Jesus said he didn't come to be served, but to serve others. So he takes us in, but even better, he not only meets our physical needs as he did there in Mark 2, healing this guy, he meets our greatest need. He he meets our spiritual need. He, He offers us the most important bread that we could ever have, his very own life. He himself brings us out of sin and slavery and gives us life. And not just life, he gives us abundant life. He didn't say, let me, let, me let, you, let me give you just enough so that you can get by. That's not the kind of life he offers. He isn't a stingy giver. When scripture refers to Jesus giving of himself, it's without scarcity. He gives everything that he possibly has. We needed grace, and I love this. John says that he supplied grace upon grace. We needed a solo cup of water, and he sent a tsunami. Hmm. All right, our weekly quote from Paul Miller in A Praying Life. If you haven't picked up the book, you should. It will, it will rock your world. Why three loaves, Miller says of this very passage. One loaf is for the friend at midnight. The second loaf is for himself so his friend doesn't eat alone. And when his friend finishes eating, the host will offer him a third loaf to show his generosity. 
The host doesn't want to look cheap. His reputation and the reputation of his community are at stake. In summary, first loaf is for his friend's physical needs. Second, for his relational needs, his community. Third, for his heart need to be loved. We have a three-loaf God. He loves to give. Jesus is the best host. A host so good that he goes to the Father on our behalf. I've known in Romans 8 that it said the Spirit prays for us. You may have heard this verse, Romans 8, 26. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. For we do not know what to pray as we ought, but the Spirit himself, there's that word, intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. This is just such a phenomenal verse. When you don't know what to pray for yourself, the Spirit knows and he's praying on your behalf. Isn't that an amazing verse? When you don't know what to pray for your kids, the Spirit knows what to pray for your kids. He's interceding on their behalf. Isn't that amazing? But I've never seen this, that it's not just the Spirit who is interceding for us. In Hebrews 7, verse 35, it says that this is the practice of Jesus, that Jesus himself, it says, lives to intercede for us. That's amazing. That Jesus himself, at the right hand of the Father, is right now interceding for you and for me. Isn't that amazing? Jesus himself is our great intercessor. He's going and knocking on the door of the Father for us on our behalf. Right now he's praying for you. What an incredible thought. Jesus, the greatest host. And Jesus is asking us to be like him. To open up our homes and resources and schedules to give what we can. And then go to the Father when our bread runs out with shameless audacity. Friends, your Father loves you perfectly. We're going to get to the passage next, and I don't want to jump the gun, but he says, you're not going to ask for a fish and get a snake. You're not going to ask for bread and get a scorpion. You can trust your father. He knows what you need, and he knows what your friends need. And he loves your friends and your son and your daughter and your family and your kinfolk. He loves your neighbors and your boss. He, they were made in his image. He loves them far more than you could ever love them. And he wants to act in their life. And he's waiting on someone like yourself to reach up and grab his hand in heaven and grab their hand on earth and begin interceding for them with shameless audacity to keep asking, to keep knocking, and to keep seeking. We've named this little series, Pray What You've Got. And I want to give us some time to just pray what we've got. I'm going to invite Rachel back up. We're going to have communion in a minute, which is this just beautiful picture of this idea of 
Jesus, the greatest host, the greatest neighbor, giving far beyond what he has, giving his very own life. And so that we would be, we would always remember that he's the greatest neighbor and the greatest friend, that, that we would have this observance every time we gather to remember his very body. He didn't just give some, he gave everything. This is what communion reminds us of. And he didn't give everything so that we wouldn't be physically hungry. He gave everything so that we could be reconnected to life with the Father. So I want to spend some time interceding. I want to invite you to pray what you've got. John Chapman says this, pray, what you, pray as you can, not as you can't. You may say this morning, Luke, I'm new to this whole faith thing. It's, there's no way I can, there's no way I can pray for an hour. Well, then don't. Luke, there's no way I can pray for, I, can, I can't pray for 30 minutes. I can't be a part of this 24. Well, then don't, don't be a part of it. Pray as you can, not as you can't. Pray what you got. Maybe you're in the room. You, you are just so filled, filled with, with doubts and discouragement. Well, pray as you can. Just bring those things to him. You don't have to get your life cleaned up before you can go to the Father. He says he, he welcomes all of them. Bring your doubts. Maybe, he, maybe you were praying a really big prayer and he didn't answer it the way you thought he should answer it and so you're still mad at him. And you don't understand how he could let that happen. And oftentimes I don't either. But I just got to trust him. Luke, I've got so many scars and so many anxieties and so many worries, and maybe I'm not even a man, a woman, or a faith. That's okay. Just bring what you got. God is excellent in taking what little we bring and turning it into something incredible. C.S. Lewis says, let us lay before him what is in us, not what ought to be in us. Would you maybe assume a posture of prayer in your seats, on your knees if you like. The altar's open. You can come here and pray. We've got some of the prayer team standing in the back. and Maybe you just want to grab one of their hands and you want to help. You want to ask them to help you intercede for your friend, for your kids, for your neighbor, for your boss, for your mom or dad, for a family member who's far from God for someone who's got a great physical need, for someone who's got a great spiritual need, for someone who's got a great financial need. Family, this is when we go to the Lord in prayer. This is when we pray, not, not for our stuff. We'll get to our stuff later, and God wants to give us what we're asking. He's a good God. This is about how we pray for our friends. This is about intercession. Who's the one or two or three names that quickly come to your mind and your heart? God's placed you in their life to be an intercessor for them. You've already tasted and seen and know that God's good, but they don't know it. They're not convinced of it. And so a shameless audacity. You push off the decorum of the fancy prayers and from the heart, 
say, God, would you move in my friend's life? God, we love you. Lord, we're asking and pleading and knocking and seeking on behalf of others. We've got some neighbors and co-workers and family members that need you to show up in a mighty way in their life. God, if we're honest, this whole prayer thing is really a mystery to us. And when you answer the prayers and how you answer the prayers sometimes don't make a lot of sense, but we trust you. We can look back in our life and we've seen that you've been faithful. Your mercies are new again today. So we trust you and we ask that you would move in the lives of our friends. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. I invite you to spend a few minutes in prayer. Our communion servers will come to their stations and they'll be ready when you're ready, but let's not rush past it. We got time. Don't miss a holy moment that God has moved your heart to pray for your friends, for your family members. For those that don't know Jesus, would you reach up to heaven and grab God's hand and pray? Lord, save them. Lord, save them. Maybe you in this room, you don't know the Lord Jesus as your Savior. I'd love to talk to you about that. As a matter of fact, there's someone you're probably with that's been praying for you for this very thing. They're the one that's interceding with shameless audacity for you. I would love to see you take a step across the line of faith today and trust him as your Lord and Savior. Do what God's leading you to do. I'll be in the back if you'd like to pray with someone. Communion servers are here. When you're ready, you come forward and take communion and then we'll sing a song together.